The scriptures, best of all books. Thy sacraments, best of all gifts. The communion of saints, best of all company. And that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in the uh, book of Revelation, and today we are going to take a look at the church in Thyatira. So, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. We're going to go ahead and read through this. This is the least significant of the cities where churches were planted here in this province of Asia, and yet, interestingly enough, this is the longest of the letters, and we'll take a look at why that may be the case. Beginning at verse 18, And to the church, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now last week we took a look at the church in Pergamum. And we said the church in Pergamum was a church that had become like the world. It was a worldly church. And we said that this was a problem. It was a problem for the liberal denominations, even today, we know that. And we said, what happens when a church becomes a worldly church? What what hope is there for it? But I said, this is not just for the mainline Protestant liberal denominations that this is a problem, becoming like the world. I said that this is often the case for the conservative evangelical churches as well. Uh, Our problem is not doubting the authority of the scriptures. That's the problem for the mainline denominations. The problem for the conservative denominations is that they doubt the sufficiency of the scripture. In other words, if you ask them, do you believe the Bible is the word of God and contains all things necessary to salvation? Absolutely. They'll check all of the boxes. But when it comes, do you believe that the Bible is sufficient for teaching people to be holy? Do you believe that the Bible is sufficient for evangelism? then all of a sudden they begin to waffle. They say, well, the Bible is important, but... And the minute you have a but, they want to add something to it, you see. 
And so what happens is that we begin to adopt the world's practices because we have adopted the world's standards of success. And the minute you adopt the world's standards of success, you have to adopt the world's methods in order to achieve it. So we said that this was a problem for the mainline denominations. It's also a problem for the evangelical conservative churches. Now, we left off last week with the question, what do you do with a worldly church? When your church becomes like the world, adopting the world's methods, and the world's definition of success, what do you do with that kind of a church? Let me just finish that up before we move on today to this church in Thyatira. Jesus asked a question in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it for? He said, it is not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, you know that in the ancient world, salt had a number of functions. One of the functions, the primary function of salt in an age before refrigeration, was to stem the tide of decay and putrefaction. It was a preservative. That's what salt was designed to do. Salt is also a condiment. It brings out flavor. Salt even has healing properties as well. I've said before that if you cut your leg and you go swimming in the ocean, you may discover as you come out that that salt water actually has a healing properties. It can facilitate the process of making the wound better. When Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, I think he had all of those things in mind. He was telling us that the world in which we live, this broken and fallen world, is in the process of going bad. It is rotting. And you and I as Christians are to be rubbed into the world so that we have a preserving effect upon the world. We're also supposed to bring out the flavor in life. Many people are looking for happiness in the world, but they're not finding it. But you and I as Christians know where you're going to find that true happiness, contentment, joy, the very things that the world promises but the world cannot deliver. And we're supposed to show people what real life tastes like, what it looks like. And of course we're supposed to facilitate healing, true spiritual healing in the world. But Jesus says, what happens if the salt ceases to be salt? Now, some people will point out that salt is a very stable compound. There's no way that it can ever lose its saltiness, but it did. In the ancient world, where they collected salt for all of these different things, was around the Dead Sea. That's where they would collect the salt. But the salt around the Dead Sea contained salt, sodium chloride, but it contained other things as well. And in the rainy season, down there by the Dead Sea, it only comes about once a year, but when the rainy season comes, they get a deluge. And what often happens is that the sodium chloride gets washed out, but there's this white powdery substance still left around the Dead Sea. Looks like salt, but when you taste it, it's lost its saltiness. And Jesus asked the question, what good is it for? Well, it wasn't good for anything. It was a worthless substance. So Jesus asked the question, what happens when the church becomes like the world? What happens when the church loses its saltiness? What good is it for? And the obvious answer is, it's good for nothing. It's good for nothing. So what do you do in that kind of a situation? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. That's what a worldly church is called to do. A mainline denomination that has lost its confidence in the authority of Scripture, Jesus says the answer to that is to repent to turn around and come back 
to the bishop and the shepherd of your souls? What's the answer to an evangelical church that has adopted the world's standards of success and the world's methods of doing ministry? Jesus' answer is repent, turn around, and come back to the bishop and the shepherd of your soul. Now, what does Jesus promise to a church that repents of this worldliness? He says two things. Verse 17, he says, first of all, I will give you hidden manna. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that is the one who perseveres to the end, having repented, I will give some of the hidden manna. And what's more, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, what do these two things mean? Again, in the book of Revelation, everything has a symbolic significance. So what's the significance of this hidden manna? Well, manna, of course, in the Old Testament was what God supplied for his people when they were wandering in the wilderness. When they were hungry and there was no food out there, it's a barren, desolate place, what did God do? He provided for them manna from heaven, that which would nourish them and keep them alive. But what is interesting is that Moses took a small portion of that manna, a small portion of that manna, and he hid it in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. That was the innermost part of the tabernacle. And the only person who could go in there was the high priest. So the hidden manna was not just God's sustenance, but it was hidden away. It was only in a place where a priest could go and have access. So when Jesus says to the one who repents, I will give the hidden manna, what he is really saying is, I will give that person access to the Holy of Holies. I will give that person access to God himself. You may recall that when Jesus died upon the cross, a number of miracles took place on that Good Friday. One was the centurion who was converted. When he saw Jesus die and he heard Jesus' final words, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. You also recall that there was an earthquake. Some of the dead were raised and were appearing there in Jerusalem. But something else happened that was very significant. What happened when Jesus died, gave up his final breath upon the cross, and the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was what? Torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing the fact that people were no longer separated from God. Jesus had paid the ultimate sacrifice, the full perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. You ever heard those words before? And the temple was, the curtain was torn in two. People had access to God. You didn't have to go through a high priest because you had a great high priest who, having made the ultimate sacrifice, sat down, his work finished at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So what Jesus is saying here to this church in Pergamum is that if they repent of their worldliness and come back, they will have access to God himself. Something else, he will give them a white stone with a new name on it. That is a way of saying that God will wipe away our past. All of our failings, all of our foolish decisions, all of our sin, God will wipe that away and he will give us a new name. I always describe it this way. I said it's like a marriage. It's like a marriage. You know, when a a young woman goes into the church, well, this is the way it used to be. I know not everybody takes the husband's name and everything, but this is the way it used to be. So just, just play along with me for a moment. 
When a young woman goes into a church, she may go in as Miss Smith. But if she marries Mr. Morris, she goes in as Miss Smith. She comes out as what? Mrs. Morris. She's been given a new name. Well, there is a sense in which when you and I become Christians, we become united to Jesus Christ. We go into the church, as it were, Miss Sinner. We come out Mrs. Christian. See, we are given a new name when we are in Jesus Christ. And that is what this church is being promised. To those who repent of their worldliness and return to the Lord, what do they do? They have access to God Himself, to that most holy place, and to that hidden manna which nourishes and provides sustenance. And you are given a new name. The past is wiped away. Behold, all things are made new. It's a word of encouragement to this church in Pergamum. Well, we turn today now to the church in Thyatira. And if you saw the opening screen, you notice that I called it a diseased church. It is not like the church in Pergamum, simply a church that has become worldly. This is a church that has actually allowed false teaching to not only thrive in the church, they have actually in some respects encouraged it in the life of the church. Let's just talk, take a look at the city of Thyatira. What was it like? Well, as I mentioned at the very beginning, this was the least important of the seven cities. We talked about the significance of Ephesus, how Ephesus in the first century was a profoundly important city. Um, it was a great commercial port. All of the great ships could go into Ephesus. And we talked about the other churches as well. Uh, we talked about the church uh, in Smyrna and how that was a church that was persecuted, but it was an absolutely beautiful place, Smyrna. Pergamum was an important city. It was also a, a place of great commerce. Thyatira really had no great significance. It was the least important of all these cities. And yet, what's interesting is that the longest of these seven letters is addressed to this church in particular, in large measure because the problems here were greater than almost anywhere else. It was located 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. Uh, I said that if you look at how the seven churches are located in the province of Asia, one of the things you'll notice is that it's like a postal clerk's route. You would travel from one city to the next city to the next city. I said it was like that. It was, in some respects, literally true. In the case of Pergamum, Pergamum was located in a broad valley that connected two other large river valleys. So most of these cities, you'll notice, were built on a hillside or on the top of an acropolis. That was not the case here. This was built in a broad river valley that connected two river valleys, and it was part of the imperial mail route. So this is where the mail actually went through. It, had, it was like a sorting center, if you will. That was the significance of Pergamum. It was along the road that connected Pergamum to Sardis, Sardis to Philadelphia, Philadelphia to Laodicea, Laodicea to Smyrna, and then from Smyrna on up to the north to Byzantium. So the real significance of Thyatira over and against places like Ephesus is that it was the I-95 corridor of its day. It was a commercial town, and it was a commercial town because of its traffic. Um, before I went to Beaufort, I had pastored a small church in Chiraw, South Carolina. Anybody know where Chiraw, South Carolina is? A few of you know where Chiraw, South Carolina is. 
Sherrill, South Carolina had a colonial church, the Old St. David's is what they called it. It was the last church, Anglican church, built in the colonies and in South Carolina prior to the American Revolution. So it was the last Church of England parish established here in South Carolina before the Revolution began. And um, it was a lovely clapboard church. But in the early part of the 20th century, there was word about uh, a new highway that was going to be going through. And uh, the church decided that what they needed to do was they, they really needed to build a larger church because when that new highway came through, they were going to have a lot more people. Well, guess what happened? They built a big, beautiful church with stained glass. It's absolutely magnificent. It seats about 350 people. And the highway never came through. And Sherall remained the loveliest little town in Dixie. Thyatira was significant because the highway came through. And that was the significance of this place. It was different from the other cities in terms of its size. As I said, it had no strategic importance because it was built in a valley. It was not built on a hillside or on the top of a tell. In fact, and this is rather sad, the Romans regarded Pergamum's only strategic significance is that it was going to be the place that would be the defensive position before falling back to Pergamum. In other words, if any of these cities, particularly Pergamum, was attacked, well, then what would happen was they would sacrifice this church or this city at Thyatira in order to preserve Pergamum. So it had no real uh, strategic significance. For the most part, it was the sacrificial lamb. It had no particular religious significance. We talked about these other cities, and we said that there were great temples there, temples to Zeus, there were temples to um, the goddess Roma, temples to Artemis or Diana, the goddess of the hunt in the case of Ephesus. They were known for these things. Now, in the case of this city, Thyatira, there certainly were temples. This was a Greco-Roman city, so there would have been all kinds of temples, all kinds of shrines, but there was nothing here of great significance. In other words, when people went to Ephesus, they went to the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis. She was known throughout the ancient world. It was a magnificent temple. When people went to Athens, what did they do? They went to see the temple dedicated to Athena. They had these magnificent things. They were wonders of the ancient world. There was no great temple like that here. There was, however, a shrine to a female oracle. Sambathi was her name. So she would have been similar to the oracle at Delphi. For those of you who are familiar with that, people would come and they would consult her. She would go into some sort of a trance and she would foretell the future and people would be very interested in consulting her. She was not nearly as famous as the oracle at Delphi, but she was located here in the city of Thyatira. What the city was really known for, aside from being on that imperial mail route, was that it was noted for its woolen trade and its dyeing industry. That's what it was really known for. It had various guilds. We would call them unions today. The various guilds were for wool, leather, linen, pottery, and the dyeing trade, where you would take woolen material and, and dye it to a different color. So that's what this city was known for. Now we asked this, the question, how did a church get planted here in Thyatira? We looked at how some of these churches were established. Paul established the church in Ephesus, for instance, on his second and third missionary journeys. Some of the other churches were probably started by Paul's disciples, 
We're told there's a little passage in the book of Acts that as Paul was preaching, the word of the Lord spread throughout the province of Asia from Ephesus. So it may very well have been because Ephesus was this great crossroads of the ancient world where everything came and went, that as people went back to their hometowns, they took with them the gospel and established churches. In the case of Thyatira, however, it's interesting to speculate how this church got started in terms of one of Paul's disciples. And in this case, the disciple would have been a woman. Her name was Lydia. If you keep your finger there in the book of Revelation, turn to Acts for just a moment, Acts chapter 16. Now, for those of you who went with me in the footsteps of St. Paul to Greece and to Turkey, you'll appreciate this because you remember the site very well. So, Acts chapter 16, <clears throat> Paul has been in the province of Asia. He's going to set foot into Europe for the very first time. It says this, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. So Paul has entered Europe for the very first time. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Now, Philippi was a former province of the, it was a province of the Roman Empire, but it had been settled by former soldiers of the Roman army. Um, it was a very Roman city in terms of its outlook, in terms of its attitude. In fact, there wasn't even, as far as we can tell, a synagogue here. There were synagogues in almost all these cities, but there was no known synagogue in Philippi. It only takes just a few men uh, in order to have a synagogue, but there was no synagogue here. Normally, Paul's pattern was to go first into a city, go to the synagogue, where he knew that there were people who at least had the Old Testament scriptures, and he would begin with the Old Testament scriptures, and from that he would begin to teach them about Jesus Christ. When he gets to Philippi, what he discovers is this very important city, there is... No synagogue. And so he looks for a place where people might possibly be praying, where the faithful might possibly be, and he's told that some people sometimes gather down by the riverside. So they went down, and they met a group of women there, and they spoke to the women who had come together. Verse 14, one who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. And she was a worshiper of God. That would have been the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said to Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Paul, when he was in Asia preparing to step into Europe, had had a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, come over and help us. And I've always liked to point out that that would have been, uh, you know, a man dressed in, in traditional Macedonian, European dress. When Paul stepped into Europe, the first convert, the first convent, convert on the European continent was a woman. So perhaps that vision of the man from Macedonia was in fact a woman from Macedonia. But whoever, it was this woman, Lydia, who was converted, the first convert in Europe. Uh, those of you who went with me, you remember going to the place where Lydia was baptized. 
Uh, the site is still there. It's a lovely site. It was, for many people, one of the most touching and moving parts of our entire trip to be able to have a service of Holy Eucharist right there by the river. You can see it flowing through. It's still there after 2,000 years where Lydia was baptized. Uh, the Orthodox Church has built a magnificent baptistry there. Uh, covered in mosaics from top to bottom. It's absolutely spectacular. It's one of the prettiest churches you'll ever go in. And the acoustics are absolutely spectacular. So when we go to that little baptistry, we always sing in there. And it doesn't matter if you can't carry a tune in a bucket. You sound like the Mormon Tabernacle <laughs> Choir in that little building. It is absolutely marvelous. But it's interesting to speculate. This church in Thyatira, the city didn't have any great significance. Paul, we know, focused primarily on the great cities of the ancient world. He had a missionary strategy. Paul would have gone to the big cities because if he could establish a Christian presence in the great cities like Ephesus and Philippi, it wouldn't be long before the gospel, like everything else, would have been coming and going. He probably would not have gone to Thyatira. So who took the gospel there? It may very well have been Lydia. She was doing business there in Philippi, selling her purple goods. She would have taken her money back. She would have gone back to her hometown, which was Thyatira, and presumably she would have taken the gospel with her when she met. So in this city, Thyatira, along the imperial mail route, a church was planted, a church that would have been in existence, like the others, for about 30 years by the time that John receives this revelation. It's a church that has some things going for it. It is a church that to some degree is praised. We said that there's normally a pattern here in which Jesus praises the churches first. He talks about the things that they do have going for them before he begins to critique them. There's only two churches that he doesn't critique. The church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. And there's only really one church for the most part that he has nothing good to say about it. And that's, of course, the last church, the church in Laodicea. So he does have some good things to say to this church in Thyatira. What does he say good about them? We'll go back and take a look at chapter 2, verse 19. I know your works. Interestingly enough, that is exactly how he began the letter to the church in Ephesus. I know your works. I know your hard work. That's what he said to the Ephesians. I know your works here, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So this was a church that was characterized by a number of things, four things in particular, all of which, if you think about it, are marks of the Christian life. The first, he says, is I know your love, your love and your faith. Now, if you remember what St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in that marvelous passage about love, he said, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's interesting that love and faith are part of that trinity of Christian virtues. Now abide love, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. This church had two of those qualities. It had love. Now, love here would have been that love for the brethren, but it would have been a love for God. A love for God. And it's the word agape, a self-sacrificing, self-emptying love, a love that thinks of another before it thinks of oneself. And Jesus says, I know your works. I know that you have love. There's genuine love that exists there in Thyatira. 
This is the most important of all the Christian virtues, love. Second thing he says, that you have faith. You know, faith is very important. The author of Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith here doesn't mean credulity. It doesn't mean hope against hope. Faith here means trust. The Greek word is pistis. It means to rely. And this was a church that was relying on God. It loved God. It loved one another. And these were the people who had great faith. Next thing he says is, I know your service. This was a church that was serving. You know, if we're going to be effective in Christian ministry, we have to be servants before we're anything else. You remember the Last Supper, what Jesus did at the Last Supper? As he's preparing to mount the arms of the cross and pay the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, knowing full well that the men with whom he was having his last meal were going to desert him, Judas had already gone out and was going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And what did Jesus do? In spite of the fact that he knew Peter would deny him three times, Judas was going to betray him, and all the rest were going to desert him, we're told that Jesus, after that meal, got down on his hands and knees, and he washed his disciples' feet. And when he finished, he said, I have set you an example. He who would be great in the kingdom of God must be servant of all. You know, so often we are interested in being served rather than serving others. As Christians, that's what we are called to do. Well, this church in Thyatira was doing it. Now, if you think about it, this is rather extraordinary. This is a church that had love, it had faith, it had service. And furthermore, Jesus says they have what? They have perseverance. They have perseverance. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Patient endurance. Jesus in Matthew's gospel said, the one who perseveres to the end is the one who will be saved. I mentioned in a sermon some weeks ago that if there is one thing that God admires in the Christian life, it is persistence. That's why Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow. She would not give up. The Christian life is not easy, my friends. But we are called to persevere, to persist, knowing that it's worth it in the end. This was a church that had all of these qualities. Love, faith, service, perseverance. You say, why in the world would you call this a diseased church? This is an extraordinary church. Well... Jesus goes on to explain. He said, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrifice to idols. What was the problem with this church in Thyatira that otherwise was quite extraordinary? Well, the primary problem is what we would call accommodating. Accommodation. They were accommodating a worldly culture and they were accommodating false teaching in their midst. They were accommodating false teaching in their midst. It's interesting to note how Jesus appears to this church. I said that in all of these letters, Christ appears in some way, in one of the images drawn from the first chapter. In the case of the church in Ephesus, Christ appeared as what? The one who walked among the seven candlestands and held the seven stars in his hands. Remember that? 
We said that these were people that were facing great persecution in the first century, primarily because there was the cult of emperor worship. Christians were expected to offer up incense to the emperor, and they refused to do so, and as a result, they were oftentimes put to death. They were greatly persecuted. In the church of Smyrna, they were literally being put to death in large numbers. And so when Christ appears to the church in Ephesus as the one who walks among the seven candlestands, representing those seven churches, and holds the seven stars in his hands, it was a way of reminding them that in the midst of all of that, God was still holding them. He had not forgotten them. He had not forsaken them. And no matter what would happen to them, ultimately, their destinies were in his hands. That's the way Christ appears to the church in Ephesus. How does he appear to the church in Smyrna, the church that was persecuted and suffering so greatly? Christ appears as the one who holds the keys to death and to Hades. A reminder to them that the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. How does he appear to the church we looked at last week? Pergamum, the church that had become like the world, adopting the world's standards and the world's methods. Christ appears as the one from whom there proceeds a two-edged sword. We said it was a double-edged sword. He said that, he would, that Christ would fight against the enemies of this church if they were faithful, but if they became like the world, he would do what? He would fight against them. How does he appear here to this church? Well, he appears as one who brings judgment. Look at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. When we first looked at these images some weeks ago, I said that this is a judicial image. Eyes like flame means that Christ sees all things. Nothing is hidden from His sight. This is why we begin the liturgy with what we call the collect for purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom what? No. no secrets are hid. God sees it all. So when Jesus appears to this church as eyes of flame, what it means is that he sees everything. There's nothing hidden from his sight. You can't put on the mask. You can't be, pretend to be something that you are not. God sees it all. And he comes with feet like bronze. If you read on in the book of Revelation to chapter 14, what you discover is that this is an image of judgment. We have something of this captured in the, the song. We don't sing it down here in this part of the country, but nevertheless, you're familiar with it. The Battle Hymn of the Republic <laughs> that has that line in it. And he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That's the idea. That's the imagery here. So when Jesus appears to this church in Thyatira, he comes not as the one who holds the seven stars, not as the one who holds the gates to Hades, not as the one who will fight against their enemy as long as they are true. He comes as the judge. He comes as the judge who sees all things and will trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Right there at the very beginning, even before you get in to recognizing what the problems in the church are, you are confronted with an image that is hardly soothing or comforting. So what exactly is the problem? Clearly there is one. What is the problem? Well, Jesus said the problem is that woman Jezebel. Now, who is Jezebel? 
Well, if you recall your Old Testament history, you know that Jezebel was a real person. She existed at the time of the prophet Elijah. She was a wicked queen. She had married King Ahab of Israel. He was a very weak man. She was a very domineering individual. She wore the pants in that relationship. There's no doubt about it. She was a wicked woman from Phoenicia. And when she married Ahab, even though he was the king of Israel, and the Israelites were called to be what? Different, separate, come out from among them and be separate. That was their mandate in the Old Testament. She brought with her her foreign gods, particularly the god Baal. And she encouraged the people, and she sort of persuaded the king to do this as well. She persuaded the people to worship Baal along with Jehovah or Yahweh. And so what you saw was this corrupting influence. We would call it syncretism today. It's a great mixing of all kinds of religions. If you think about it, we live in a very syncretistic age, don't we? Where people think that you can worship all kinds of gods. It doesn't matter what god you worship. What's important is that you're a spiritual individual. That's what we hear a lot about today. Well, that's what was happening here. And so there was this corrupting influence that was taking place in the nation of Israel. Now, you know the story. What happened was Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal, the prophets of this wicked queen, there on Mount Carmel. And God brought judgment and proved that he was true. So this is who Jezebel was. Now, this is not a reincarnation of that Old Testament queen, but what we're being told is that there was somebody there in that community in Thyatira who was like Jezebel. Now, there's been some speculation about this. Was this actually an or was this just meant to designate a spirit of compromise that had pervaded the church? It's probably both. The text seems to imply that there was a woman there who was functioning as a prophetess and she was teaching things that were contrary to the word of God. So it probably designates a spirit of compromise. Now what was Jezebel actually teaching? Well, we don't know. There's a lot that we don't know about uh, this false teaching. What we do know is that she's being referred to having taught the deep things of God. What that probably means is that she was, going either, she was either going beyond the Scripture or she was taking away from the Scripture. In other words, there, there was something that was being taught, and people would say, well, this is what the Word of the Lord says. And she said, yes, the Word of the Lord is true, but... There is another insight. There's another way of looking at this. Whatever it was, it was some sort of doctrinal error that was taking place in the life of this church. She was teaching things that were contrary to God's Word. And as a result of doing that, the people had become engaged in moral compromise. This is always the case, folks. Whenever there is error on doctrinal matters, you know, some people say, I'm just not interested in doctrine. Doctrine is dry, it's it's of no interest to me. But here's the problem. If you err on doctrinal matters, it is not long before you are erring on moral matters as well. Who God is determines how we live. And if we have a wrong view of God, we will have a wrong view of life. And that was the case for this church and Thyatira. Their moral compromise was twofold. First of all, they were eating food sacrificed to idols, and they were engaging in sexual immorality. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about this as, to, this as well. 
I mentioned earlier that there were a number of guilds in this city. Guilds for the dyeing industry, guilds for the woolen industry, guilds for leather makers and so forth. I said we would call these unions today. But these guilds would have these large dinners. Uh, those of you who've been to London, you've probably seen the Guild Hall. It's a magnificent building. There's a holdover to this in medieval England. And so they have these great banquets. Even today in the Guild Hall, they have these great banquets. There's one on the screen today. But they would have these great banquets there among the, the guilds in Thyatira. And you were expected, if you wanted to keep your job, if you were engaged in the dyeing industry, you had to go to one of these be a member of one of these guilds. I, I remember what happened to my father. My father was um, a biologist. Um, he taught for a number of years. He also ran a lab at the local hospital. And what was interesting is one time the hospital workers went on strike. And they were part of a union there in Pennsylvania. And they had a picket line. And they didn't want anybody to cross the picket line. And my dad just was not a member of the union, and he felt that he had a responsibility to patients. And so he insisted upon crossing the picket line. And they actually attacked his car. They dented his car. They broke the windshield. He felt threatened for his very life. Well, there was this sense in which if you didn't join one of these guilds in the first century, there was a sense in which you were not part of the community. There was a sense in which you could lose your job, your livelihood. If, if Lydia was not a member of the dying guild, she could be out of business very quickly. But part of these guilds were these magnificent dinners that they would host. And of course, there was lots of wine, lots of alcohol, and oftentimes descended. Things would descend to a very low level, a debased level. They would become just wild orgies. And so it may very well be that some of these Christians were engaging in these practices, and as a result, they were what? Bringing disrepute upon the faith and disrepute upon the Lord. Now, this was taking place in the church in Thyatira. And what was Christ's complaint against it? He said, what you had was a healthy body that had all of these virtues, faith, love, perseverance, but they were allowing people to engage in these practices, and here's the worst part, they weren't doing anything about it. The members of the church were looking the other way. This sort of thing was taking place among church members. They were living in a worldly fashion, and it wasn't the case where the church was confused. The church knew these things were evil, but the church didn't want to offend. It didn't want to cause any trouble, so it allowed it to take place. It basically said, well, that's just one perspective. It became a compromised church. As I said, failure to hold right doctrine leads to moral failure. Moral failure requires discipline to bring people back in line, and the problem for this church was that it did not discipline its errant members. The critical word here is in verse 20, where we're told that they tolerated the teaching of that woman, Jezebel. Tolerance is a big word for us today, isn't it? That's one of those buzzwords that you hear so often in our culture. We are to be tolerant people. The worst sin you can ever commit is to be intolerant. And yet this is the very thing that Christ is condemning this church for, for being tolerant. It was tolerating false teaching which was leading to a failure in the moral realm and that was leading to a failure for people to really be an effective witness. 
You know, discipline is not meant to be punishment. Sometimes when you punish somebody, the purpose is just to make them pay for something that they've done to you. Discipline is designed to do what? It's designed to build somebody up. It's designed to make them stronger. When they go the wrong way, you want to bring them back in line. There's a reason why a bishop walks around with a shepherd's crook. Because sometimes the sheep will go astray. And he has that that crook to do what? The shepherd. To pull the sheep back in line. Because if sheep wander off by themselves, they are helpless creatures. They have no defense whatsoever. And so the church leaders were supposed to discipline its members. But apparently they felt that was being judgmental. And so they refused to do it. I'm going to give you a modern-day example, and then I'm going to break with this. I have so much to say and so little time in which to say it. This is somebody some of you may remember, and I think he's one of the most tragic figures of the 20th century. Anybody know who that man is? It's not Bishop Spong. Somebody got it right. It's Bishop James Pike. Bishop Pike was, um, he was a remarkable man. He was a lawyer in New York City and decided to leave the law and go to the ministry, became an Episcopal priest. He uh, was a very smart, brilliant man. He eventually became the dean of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. So this was a very high-profile position that he had. Um, He then got elected Bishop of California. But Bishop Pike, by the time he became Bishop of California, had some very strange ideas. And he had begun by this point to reject a large portion of what we would call essential Christian teaching. By the time he became Bishop of California, he was denying a belief in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He said there is no such thing as hell. He said the doctrine of the Trinity does not exist. And he didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. He believed that Jesus Christ was a son of God in the sense that we are all sons and daughters of God. Now understand that this is a bishop of the church. How did he get to be be a bishop of the church? Well, that's another story. But at any rate, how do any of them get to be bishops? It's a wonder. But Bishop Pike was the bishop of California. His family life was a mess. He was married four times. Uh, divorced a whole series of women, so he was what you would call a serial monogamist. He had a son, he had a son who unfortunately got uh, into the drug culture out there in California and committed suicide. And the bishop, because he didn't believe in much else, turned to spiritualism. And so they had a very um, well-publicized, televised, in fact, seance at the Episcopal residence in which he tried to get in touch with his deceased son. Now, this is the Bishop of California. Well, this is the 1960s. All kinds of things were tolerated, but even in the Episcopal Church in those days, they said, look, this is, this is a little much. And so they brought him up on a heresy trial. But they determined that there was no such thing as heresy in the Episcopal Church anymore. And so Bishop Pike was allowed to continue in his position. And it only went from bad to worse. Having lost his faith, having lost his son, he became really desperate to believe in something. And with his fourth wife, he decided to take a trip to the Holy Land where he was going to discover the historic, the real Jesus. There's the Christ of faith, he said, but then there's the Jesus of history. 
The Christ of faith is what the church worships, but there's a real Jesus, and you just have to strip away all the vines and tendrils of tradition, and eventually you'll find the real Jesus. He went out into the Judean wilderness to find this Jesus. He rented a car. He and his wife went out with nothing but two Coca-Colas into the Judean wilderness. Their car broke down, and he went out looking for help. He never came back. They found him three days later. He had fallen down into a deep canyon, and he had died there, helpless and hopeless. I say he's one of the tragic figures because he opens the door for all the other bishops like Spong and others that we're so familiar with to come along after him. Because once they say there's no such thing as heresy, then there's no such thing as discipline. This was a poor man who was desperately looking for something. You can't help but wonder if the church had lovingly disciplined him and brought him back in line, would it have changed things? Would it have changed the trajectory that we found ourselves on? One only knows. But that's what happened to Bishop Pike, and that's a picture of what was happening to the church in Thyatira. There were good people there, just as there were good people in the Episcopal Church in the 1960s, but there were some that were being tolerated, that were teaching things contrary to the faith, and it was like a cancer had made its way into the body of believers. And Jesus was calling them out for it. Now what happens when a church becomes diseased like that. How do you deal with a cancer in the body of Christ? Well, you have to come back next week and hear how you deal with that in the body of Christ. So you see, with each of these churches, there's, there's a remedy. What's the remedy for this church? Next week, we'll talk about it. All right, we'll see you in church.